welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Monday, August 28th, we are starting a new series here on Sharper Iron. It is called The Holiness of God. Starting today and going through the end of September, we will be studying the third book of the Bible, the book of Leviticus. If you have ever tried to read the Bible straight through from cover to cover, the book of Leviticus might have been a difficult one for you. All the rules for sacrifices, the regulations concerning what is clean and what is unclean, that's not the sort of literature that we're used to reading all the time. If that's the reputation that you have for the book of Leviticus, this series aims to change that. Together, we will discover God's grace in the book of Leviticus. He locates his presence among his people in a gracious way, so that his holiness does not destroy his people, but rather so that they can dwell with him as his forgiven children, and they can receive holiness as a gift from him. As the Lord accomplishes that goal through the sacrifices and other rituals that are described, we will see how Christ was proclaimed ahead of time as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In today's show, we will introduce the book as a whole and study the first chapter, Leviticus 1, verses 1 to 17. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us the Reverend Dr. Adam Hensley. Dr. Hensley serves as Associate Professor of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. Dr. Hensley, welcome to Sharper Iron. Thank you. It's good to be with you. So glad to have you, Dr. Hensley. I know you're, you're relatively new there at the seminary, but I know you got a lot of Old Testament background for us. Now, now here on Sharper Iron, we've been in a variety of places during this calendar year. We, we read John, we read Revelation, we've read some Psalms, we just got done with the book of Ecclesiastes. So we've been jumping around a little bit. Help us to get our bearings with the book of, Le- of Leviticus. Where do we find ourselves canonically, historically? Just help us to, to set that context. Sure. Yeah, it's a it's a wonderful book, and um, and as you said in your introduction, it it can sometimes uh, I think throw people a little because it's it's a very unfamiliar world, isn't it? But yeah. the the riches within the book of Leviticus are, are really something to to plumb, and and uh, yeah, it's really worth looking into closely. Um, I, I whenever I've taught the book of Leviticus, I like to sometimes tease my students that it's it's kind of the most important book of the Bible. Now I, I say that just to kind of get them thinking about about it, to mostly to overcome some of those initial reactions that we all have when we start reading the book, but also to help them think about the location of the book, um, both in the canon of Scripture and in in terms of the history, the story of Scripture. And to start with that first one, the canonical position, you think about where that is. The book of Leviticus is slap in the middle of the Pentateuch. Uh, this is the, the headwaters of the Bible, the foundation, uh, the five books of Moses that um, from which everything else stems. And, uh, and there in the middle of it, Leviticus is central. Uh, there's something important about that just uh, in its own right. And um, in terms of history then... Uh, you think about the the story of Israel, how they're re- redeemed from from Egypt, 
God redeems them with the mighty signs and plagues. Uh, and they pass through the Red Sea and they arrive at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. But they won't depart Mount Sinai until Numbers 10. So either side of the book of Leviticus, you have a great slab of, of material in the Bible where they are still located there receiving God's instruction on how he, as you said in the beginning, longs to be with them, to show his gracious, favorable presence with them. This is what this is all about. And, and he spends all this time instructing Moses uh, and, and through Moses, really, the Israelites. Uh, how is it that you can be in my presence as I have come down to you to be in your presence? This is the remarkable thing that you know, the, the creator of the world, holy and you know, perfect, should come and dwell amongst people uh, who, of course, by nature are sinful and unclean. How does that happen? Well, this makes this a very practical book because um, we all want to know that. <laughs> uh, we want to know, how is it that God can dwell with me, a, a sinner? And Leviticus answers this for the old covenant people. Okay. Okay. So we're, again, we're centrally located in those five books of Moses, right between Exodus and Numbers. The people are at Mount Sinai. In terms of the, the narrative, like they've gotten there to Mount Sinai, what's been happening before because I, I think we need to read Leviticus just as a continuation of the story, right? So what's what's yeah. been happening leading up to where we get to Leviticus one? Yeah, this is a great question. So from um, from the first so the first half of Exodus, we've been reading how God has redeemed them, brought them out of Egypt, uh, and have crossed the Red Sea in Exodus fourteen, and Moses has sung his song in Exodus fifteen. Of course, they grumble in the wilderness. We get to know that that's pretty typical, isn't it, of the Israelites and ourselves, if we're honest. Um, and then they arrive at Mount Sinai, and at that point, um, in Exodus 19, you know, God promises that they will be, and this is the purpose of the covenant that, that, that for them to be um, His His possession. You know, a royal nation, a holy nation, and a, a, um, a kingdom of priests. That this is their their vocation in the world. Israel is to be like this mediatory people between God and all the nations. So he's not just calling them apart to be his own for their own sake, but also for the sake of the world. So there's a great kind of missiological purpose here to the old covenant. So in uh, Exodus 19, God's laying this out. And of course, Moses is going to be the mediator of God's instruction to his people. And one of the things he prefaces his uh, Ten Commandments with uh, which is coming in the in the in Exodus twenty, is that I'm going to speak to them, Moses, in my own voice, uh, so that they may believe you forever. So the mosaic instruction that we get, not just in Leviticus, but you know throughout the Pentateuch, is foundational for Israel, and and that God that the people then would receive the mosaic instruction, the mosaic Torah. Uh, which of course includes both law and gospel. It's, it's everything that God long, wants his people to know and, um, and that they should heed that to live in that covenantal life that God has given them. That, of course, is their greatest challenge. As we read the later history books, we see that this is the problem. They keep departing from that. But that, that's, the, that's why he, he uh, one of the reasons why God speaks to them in his own voice in, in, in chapter 20. And the people themselves, after hearing that voice, say, we can't stand this anymore. You know, the voice of God, unmediated, is too much for us. Um, 
you speak to us, Moses. Tell him to uh, just tell you, and then we'll, we'll listen to what you say, <laughs> just as God had, had said. So um, after that point, we get a whole lot of um, of instruction mediated by Moses, God's instruction, and it involves uh, you know all sorts of laws. The the covenant itself is, is cut in, especially in Exodus twenty four. Um, the sacrifices are offered. And Moses says, this is the blood of the covenant. And he does something unique there. He sprinkles the blood on the, on the people to consecrate them as his holy people. And, and then, you know, in, in chapters 25 through to 31, we get God's instruction uh, about the tabernacle, the place where he will dwell amongst them, about the priesthood and these sorts of things, which anticipate God living in the midst of his people, dwelling among them. Now, of course, at chapter 32, we get something terrible happen. The people uh, have already, even before the, the, um, the, the, those tablets have cooled off, <laughs> before the ink is dried, as it were, uh, the people have built a golden calf. They're trying to find their own way to access God. And that's, that's the mark of pagan worship. You're trying to find your own way to access God. God will have none of that. He will be accessed on his own terms only. He, he provides, graciously, he provides that way for the people to, to come into his presence, to receive his favor and all his goodness, all his, his uh, gifts for them, atoning for them, to share his holiness with them, all of that. But they've departed from that. So chapters 32 to 34 are really the resolution of that. Uh, and there's it, it, two problems. One is, first, uh, they've sinned in such a way as God's ready to wipe them out. Moses intercedes for them. But then there's also another problem. Uh, he says, well, you know, go on, you know, just leave this place. You go into the land. I'll send my angel with you, but I can't, I can't, I can't be there with you because you, the way they, these people are, they're stiff-necked. I'm just going to destroy them. My holiness is incompatible with this unclean, sinful people. So Moses intercedes again, and, um, and he secures God's presence with his people again. So that by the time we get to the end of Exodus, we've got another slab of material that speaks about the, the actual construction of the tabernacle and its furnishings, and then the erection of the, of the tabernacle. And then at the end in chapter the 40, um, the, the kavod, the glory, the presence of God coming down and filling the tabernacle. God is present with his people corporately in the tabernacle. So there's a big question on the end of that, isn't there? And that is, well, now what? How is it that um, that uh, God will truly dwell with his people who, as we have seen, are prone to uh, idolatry, who, who need their sins forgiven regularly? How is it that God will, will actually dwell among his people? And that's what the book of Leviticus uh, shows us, quite practically speaking. Yeah, that's that's fantastic, because that really does help us to, I think, appreciate Leviticus and make it a lot more a book about what God is doing for his people making it possible for him to dwell among them, rather than making it just a completely legalistic book as to what his people have to do to somehow earn a spot. So just that setting helps us to see the gracious nature of this book already. Now, we've, we've mentioned Moses' role multiple times already. In terms of the authorship of this book, is there much more to say than, than that? No, I don't think so. I mean, uh, God is, he calls out to Moses, he speaks to Moses. What we have here is is that mosaic mediated instruction. Yeah, okay, and, so Moses, uh, Moses, the author, he's the one who's going to be recording, receiving this word, passing it along 
to the people. In terms of the you know that narrative that you've been describing, is there any narrative per se in the book of Leviticus? Is there anything that quote happens, or is it primarily instruction? Uh, it is primarily instruction, but there are some things that happen. And and actually, after the initial section, which of course chapter one begins, that's chapters one to seven, all about offerings, and that's often the the, uh, the hardest bit for for people to get into because of all the detail in that. And we'll get to that, but. Right. Um, Right away after that, in chapter 8, you have the ordination of Aaron and his sons as priests. This is important because God isn't just instituting Israel as a priestly nation to the nations. The, the, this priestly nation also needs its own mediators on a regular basis to, uh, to, to facilitate that relationship between God and them. And that's what the priesthood is there for, to... Uh, to make atonement um, with the offerings that the Israelites would bring forward um, to bless the people, to put God's name on the people. And that, that's coming in numbers, by the way, in number six, you know, the, the blessing with which we're very familiar from the divine service in our own day. You know, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. This, um, this is in from numbers six, and it was likely the uh, blessing that the high priest or his uh, representative who was officiating at the morning and evening divine service in Israel would speak to the people. So God was now um, present to speak his blessing, to atone for them, to do all that. That took priesthood to do that on a regular basis. So that's chapter 8. And then chapter 9, you have more narrative where um, where Aaron uh, conducts the inaugural divine service, the corporate service where he offers the, the burnt offering and and he, he does just this he comes out and uh, and blesses the people and and um and god accepts his offering uh, he assures israel of his favorable presence and this is the foundation for everything nobody just waltzes into god's presence and says hey i'd like your favor no god must initiate this he must he must uh provide the basis for his own favorable uh, response and invitation to people and it's always on the basis of someone else or something else out of a right sacrifice a pleasing sacrifice that god himself has determined what it is uh, so even when we think in new testament terms that's how it is for us we're not accepted on the basis of ourselves our works who we are we're accepted by god on on account of christ and christ alone and all of this anticipates that it's it's really of a piece with it because uh, it foreshadows it so that, uh, that would be the next bit of narrative, a wonderful moment in chapter 9 where, you know, God accepts uh, Aaron's offering. And then you get to chapter 10. And uh, Aaron's own sons, Nadab and Abihu, decide that they will come forward of their own initiative. Again, this is that pagan way of thinking. I'm going to determine on what terms I come into God's presence. Um, and they bring what the scriptures describe as strange fire, not the divinely originated fire that God had, had come out from the sanctuary entrance to burn up Aaron's acceptable sacrifice because it was according to the word of Moses or according to the word of the Lord through Moses. That's what made it acceptable. All right worship is according to the word of the Lord. And that's a, that's a, that holds true for, throughout the scriptures. Um, but instead they brought uh, their own fire, their strange fire. And incidentally, that word strange is often used to describe strange gods. 
those gods that aren't the true God that Israel have a propensity to run after. And uh, if we're honest, we do too, <laughs> with our own idolatries and so forth. But um, but yeah, and what happens? Well, ironically, um, the the fire of God still comes, but it doesn't consume their offering, it consumes them. Mm-hmm. And it shows the great threat that God's holiness is to God's people that you described earlier. Um, when we try to come in our own power, in our own steam, on our own merits or in our own way, um, we, we cannot be that presumptuous before God without consequences. And so God, what does God desire? He desires a humble, contrite heart. And it's always in that way that we are invited by Scripture, by God, to, to come into his presence. And he doesn't refuse a contrite heart. It's a wonderful yeah. thing. So we've, we've talked at length about God's presence among his people. That's a pretty key theme in the book of Leviticus. The word holiness has also come up. What What is God's holiness? How should we define this? Oh, boy. Well, you know, I, I, <laughs> I, I really re- am reluctant to define what the Scriptures don't define. You know, oh, um, interesting, because the Scriptures don't actually define it. Um, the best we, we can sort of start to uh, get a sense of it. But I think it, it needs to start with, who God is, God in his being. It, it, it's, some, it's sort of, if you like, a quality that, um, that that one can only think of in terms of the the uniqueness of God and his being. And as and we see it in contrast to other things, the the earthly world, the realm, um, the, the, the world of the unclean, for instance. The, the book of Leviticus makes a big deal of the distinctions between what is clean and what is unclean, but also what is common, and those things that, you know, what is common could be clean or unclean. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what is holy? What is holy pertains to God and his presence. So when, when how we encounter this notion of holiness in, in Leviticus is actually far more practically than definitionally, if I can put it that way. Okay. Um, Israel are taught to uh, not go near the holiness of God if X, Y, or Z. You know, that, that there, there's an uncleanness on them or something. What they need to do is be able to diagnose their uncleanness, and that's by the way what the priesthood is for. After that episode in in episode in, uh, in chapter ten, where Nadab and Abihu were swallowed up by fire, God instructs Aaron to teach the people to uh, to, to distinguish between what's clean and unclean. And mo- much of the uh, the the teaching in Leviticus is all about that: what's clean, what's unclean, so that the Israelites can distinguish when they are. Uh, there's an uncleanness on them, to use the the biblical terminology, and what that means practically is when they should abstain from um, the uh, the peace offerings, the offerings which they would uh, actually partake of, that they would eat. There was a class of offerings that not just the priests would eat part of it, but the but the the family would, the Israelite family, and uh, and God's goal in that was to to give table fellowship to his people. He wants them to be at table with him. Um, but there are times when that would be dangerous because this is holy meat. And if it's going to come in contact with uh, the unclean, uh, well, you've got a problem there, um, just as we saw with, with other examples, um, such as Nadab and Abihu. So um, God is was always, he doesn't want to destroy his people. He, his holiness is, is, is it's a, it's a wonderful thing he wants to share with them. He wants to share himself with them because he himself is holy. He says, I am holy. Um, but, you know, 
if they are unclean, well, there's a threat to their very existence. And God, God wants to wants them. He wants to first make them clean. He wants to fit them for His presence. So when God is at work in the offerings, what He's doing is not just um, saying, "Well, here I am, Holy God, woof, I'm at your door frame." No, he, he says, I'm first going to atone for your guilt. I'm going to take your sin away. I'm going to fit you for my presence so that you can have holy communion with me, holy fellowship with me. Yeah, I, again, that way of describing holiness rather than defining it and seeing it as that which is unique to God, which he desires to share with his people and give to his people, again, I think helps, helps us to see the gracious nature of the book of Leviticus, I know it's coming later in, in chapters, but the Lord will say, be holy as I am holy. Mm. When we understand holiness in the way that you've described it, then that holiness is not based on my performance, no. but it's based on God's gift. That's right. It's only something God can do. Only he can sanctify by his presence. You know, our, our works do not make us holy. Um, the, the, the law is holy. You know, we, we are, we are um, redeemed, we are sanctified, though, by God through his means of grace in order that we may walk in newness of life, as Paul would put it, or walk in the holy path. And actually, I mean, we think about the Ten Commandments. What is God doing? He's putting before those whom he has redeemed and whom he is about to sanctify in the covenant and make his holy nation and people. He's setting before them the path of what holy people do. This is just what they do. Uh, so its instructive purpose is very important because it tells them this is the holy way. Um, but in terms of the, but the doing of it doesn't make you holy. There's a distinction there. The doing of it is simply the doing of it. You, God makes you holy. <laughs> Only he could do that. And now you have that wonderful privilege of walking in his ways, his path, which is a life-giving, good, holy way. Walking with yeah. God. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, but before we jump into more specific conversation on chapter one, then just thinking about the book book of Leviticus as a whole, how does Leviticus preach Christ? Oh, well, in many ways, um, uh, I think we'll see it already in our first chapter. Um, but yeah, I, I, my mind first of all goes, I've got to say, to Leviticus sixteen, the Day of Atonement, um, and the reason for that is that the Book of Hebrews, letter the Hebrews really makes a lot of this. It recognizes uh, Christ's um, sacrificial death as the offering, the atoning sacrifice. Um, and just as the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, that innermost sanctum in the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant was to make atonement, um, Hebrews recognizes Jesus' ascension into heaven as entry into the true heavenly sanctuary of which the tabernacle was a a shadow you know this is and this is permanent it doesn't have to be done just once a year christ has entered once for all and he is there interceding constantly for us making atonement for us um and so it 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 certainly preaches christ in that it, it um you know it foreshadows what christ is going to do it's this is the the expression, the word becoming flesh, you know, in the Old Testament, like Christ in the flesh has, has not, not you come to do the ministry of the cross and the resurrection and, and the ascension. But but this is of a piece with that. This is this is a type of that. And um, 
And so it points to Christ at least in that way. And, uh, and I think also just sacramentally, I mean, here we have the foundations of sacramental theology. As you've said before, um, a number of times in your comments, God is at work here. This is divine service. And we understand that as God, the divine one, serving us. And that's remarkable. This is just so anti-pagan. Usually you think about, you know, pagan thinking runs the other way. You know, I, I'm serving the gods and usually I'm doing it so that I can get a better deal. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to grease the divine palm. Uh, you know, this, yeah. the old saying, do et deis, I do that you may do, is pretty much sums up pagan thinking and religion. You know, this is the other way around. God says, I have done, I have redeemed, I have taken you apart for myself. I am among you. I am sanctifying you and having atoned for you. This is all me. <laughs> I'm doing for you. You have my favor. Uh, and now you get to be my witnesses in this world and I had to walk the way that I put before you. So it, it, that's that's kind of the contours of New Testament theology too, isn't it? This is this is the thing that the Old and New Testament are not contrasting in this way. They're, one is foreshadowing the other, but it, the same God is graciously at work, uh, be it different within different covenants, if you like, but you know, under the Old Covenant, he's doing the same thing same kind of thing with these people anticipating what he would do perfectly uh, in Christ the one sacrifice for all that's that is fantastic so with, with all of that in mind then I think hopefully the book of Leviticus can become for us one that we are not afraid to read one that we don't see as just a bump in the road but one that does proclaim God's grace found in Christ the final sacrifice for us sinners so I think we're going to go ahead and take our break there and then pick up more of chapter one specifically on the other side you're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO we're talking to Dr. Adam Hensley this morning about Leviticus chapter one we will be right back please stick around Lutheran Church Extension Fund exists to support Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and church workers. How do we do this? Your investment with LCEF makes it possible for LCMS churches, schools, organizations, and church workers to receive low-cost loans for new and growing ministries. And faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, make that possible when you invest with LCEF. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, August 28th. We're studying Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 to 17 with the Reverend Dr. Adam Hensley. He is Associate Professor of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. Dr. Hensley, prior to the break, we introduced the book as a whole, and now we turn to the first chapter. You talked a little bit about some details of outline. You mentioned chapters 8, 9, and 10 as some narrative, the clean and unclean regulations that come after that. Those first seven chapters, though, of which our text is a part, how do, what kinds of things do we encounter there? How does chapter one fit into that? Help us to get into the more narrow context now. Sure, yeah. It's, um, the first seven chapters, uh, 
they, they talk about the different classes of offerings, and chapter one will be all about the burnt offerings. Um, these are uh, the voluntary offerings for most part. I mean, you've got the morning and evening sacrifice that um, will happen as part of the, um, the divine service. And actually, we read all about that as early as, you know, is the book of Exodus. Um, so, yeah, that's going, that's going to happen. That's the corporate offering, which, in which, at which point God is saying, I'm here, I'm graciously among you, you have my favor. Come, you know, bring your offerings, bring your gifts, and, and let me work in you what I will to work in you through those offerings. And so that's what, that's what this is really about. There's um, a fair bit of repetition you know, to the you know, first time reader. You're reading this. You're thinking, gosh, I'm reading all about burnt offerings and, uh, and then uh, you know, peace offerings and sin offerings and reparation offerings or guilt offerings. Um, and then I seem to be reading all this stuff over again. And there's just different kinds of legislation here. What The first kind is more case law, as it's called, where these are the circumstances under which you would uh, offer this kind of offering, what it's for, that kind of thing. So the first um, well, five chapters or so are, are going through the different classes of offering in that way. So they're sort of addressed primarily to the Israelites and and uh, saying, you know, when you want to bring an off a bird offering, well, this is what you do. This is what 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 it is and what it does. You know, what its focus is. And um, and then uh, when you get to those last two chapters, six and seven. The focus is more on on what the priest is doing, the, the kind of ritual enactment, uh, that kind of mandatory, uh, that regulatory uh, law. So there is a sort of a different difference there, uh, and you'll you'll kind of pick that up, I think, as you read the two sections with that in mind. But um, but the remarkable thing about this stuff is that, as we saw before, we had God's presence in uh, in the tabernacle, the glory filling the tabernacle in at the end of Exodus. And then we saw the, the inaugural divine service in chapter 9 and before that the ordination of the priests. You find this material, you might expect those things one to flow onto the next, but instead you find this, this manual for offerings, essentially, it's a manual, um, here between those things. As if to say, this is the purpose. You know, God wants to invite his people into his presence so that he could have table fellowship with them. You know, it's, it's a beautiful thing that it's here and not just sort of tacked on the end somewhere like, oh, no, well, the priests, of course, they're the most important people, so therefore that's next and the priority. No, it starts with the, the offerings and how God wished to bless his people through them in this manual of offerings. Yeah, yeah. Well, and even as, as we get into the text now, just to notice how it's not only the priest as the actor, but the, the person bringing the offering is very much a participant in what happens. So we'll see that as we get into the text. This is Leviticus chapter 1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his, head, his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, 
And the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons the priests shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons the priests shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar, and he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar, but the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. And the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. That's our text for today. That's Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. So Dr. Hensley, we see a lot of things there that we've talked about. Maybe one thing that we've mentioned, but could use a little bit more, a reminder of what we're talking about here, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, they're going to go to the entrance to the altar. Can you describe a little bit of the layout and what we need to be picturing in our minds with the setting here for this stuff? Sure, yeah. Um, so the, the attentive meeting, of course, has been erected at the end of chapter 40 of Exodus there, and God is present there. Um, this is uh, this is a courtyard, a large courtyard, and uh, you've got really... Uh, the, the main tent of meeting itself in the um, sort of back end of it, uh, the entrance is always at the east. Um, and then as you move from the, the entrance in toward it, uh, you are going toward the temp, the actual tent with the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. In the Holy of Holies is just the Ark of the Covenant with the cherubim you know, carved on it, um, put on top on the mercy seat. Uh, and that's it. And then in the holy place, which is the room at the front of that, uh, that the priest would enter on a regular basis. Uh, the, the holy of holies would only ever be entered uh, once a year on the day of atonement. But the, the holy place, um, you know, had the table for the bread of the presence. It had the altar for burnt for the incense, which was another kind of burnt offering. You know? um, and it created smoke as well as the burnt offering will do, as we'll, we'll see. We've just heard about. Uh, and then the menorah or the uh, the lampstand the um, with that would have to be tended also on a daily basis, and that would give light to the sanctuary. And it, by the way, was modelled off uh, a budding almond tree. So you sort of you get a picture of this sanctuary, which is um, yeah, really uh, there's a lot of resonance here with the, with the description of Eden. Um, you know, you've got the the tree of life, for instance. Well, you've got a tree of light here with the right. with the lampstand. You've got um, of course, God's very present here. I've got angels carved into the um, you know, the uh, the furnishings and what have you. The, the architecture and the curtains themselves have this sort of um, stuff depicted as well. Um, so the, the whole point is that God has given some sort of access to His holy presence and sanctuary 
that we lost at Eden uh, with the fall of man. Um, so God was breaking into this world, you know, finding ways for his holy presence to once again find fellowship with people. Um, now, at the front of that, uh, between the very entrance of the courtyard and the entrance to the, the, the tent proper, was the altar for burnt offering. And, um, and that's where the, the offerings would all take place. So these, this is a holy, most holy place, and just as the, the, um, uh, the, the Holy of Holies was as well. Uh, and very significant place, because this is the place where God and the people would, would meet. Uh, he'd meet in fire on the altar, just like um, Moses encountered him in the burning bush. You know, this is not unusual. By this stage, um, you know, we've seen God encountering his people, his, these theophan- theophanies, theophanic um, appearances of God, where he, he's come to his people in rather unusual ways. <laughs> and one of them was the burning bush. But here you have the altar where God promised to meet with his people. Uh, so this is sort of the place of meeting, hence the term tent of meeting. Uh, this is the place of, of meeting with God and meeting in a couple of senses. You know, you, you have a meeting, you, you meet together in a, at a time, uh, but also it's an appointed place for this purpose. This is God's appointed place. He's, you don't just get to make that up. You know, you don't just get to say, oh, I want to meet with God over here this time or over there or over there. And Israel did a lot of that. They would, you know, they would in their syncretistic practices where they'd blend mm. their worship with of God with, with worship of the other gods. They would go all sorts of places, you know, on, on the high places, etc., thinking they could meet with God there. God said, no, I'll, I will meet with you when and where in the way that I determine. And it's the same in the New Testament. He will meet with us who? Through whom? Through Christ. You know, he determines this. So that's the, the broad layout uh, of, of the uh, topic. There's more to it, but that, sure. would, that would be the picture that we should have. Yeah. 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 Well, and, and what you were saying there about God's the one who determines this, I think is, is part of the significance to those first couple of verses that maybe you, we skip over just because we have all these details. But the fact that Lord, the Lord is the one who calls Moses, who speaks to him, this is the Lord's speech to Moses then that goes mm-hmm. to the people— I mean, that's just, and we've, we've said this multiple times, God is the one who initiates it. He sets the terms to bring his people into his presence rather than them just barging in on their own somehow. That's right. And, um, and actually that expression there, the, you know, the book of Leviticus in Hebrew is known you know, as Wayakra. That's because it's the first word of the book. You know, the, the Pentateuchal books are very imaginatively named. Uh, <laughs> just take the first word of the book in Hebrew and that's its name. So, uh, but Wayakra means, and he called. You know, he called out, and, and then it's followed by uh, to Moses, right? Um, this expression only turns up a few times prior to this uh, in, in re- relation to Moses here. And, um, and you find it at the burning bush in Exodus 3, 14, where God is about to reveal his name. You know, he's about to give Moses his name um, to, by which he would deliver the Israelites, you know, and, and redeem them. Um, it occurs in... Exodus 19, we talked about that before, uh, where God is about to say, this is who you are, my people, you know, and, and, and it occurs again in Exodus 24, just after the covenant's been cut and God's about to give his instructions to Moses as he descends on Mount Sinai to give that uh, instruction. So if it's some very significant moments uh, in, in the revelation that has taken place, you know, especially in these latter parts of Exodus, uh, this is an expression that calls it to mind. So, well, something significant is coming again. God is about to give this instruction for his people. 
And uh, he wants us to think of those other times too. And this is a continuation of that in many ways. So within the first thing, then, that the Lord speaks to Moses, summoning him in this way, he talks about any one of you bringing an offering to the Lord, and then it can come from the herd, from the flock, or as we find out later in the chapter, there's the the option of bringing some birds. Mm. So there's a number of similarities as these are described. I'm not sure. There's so many ways we could approach this, I suppose. Dr. Hensley, where, where should we start? What are some of the things that we need to notice in these details? Sure. You'll notice that just in terms of length, the most text is spent on the first one. Right. There's not any needless repetition, really. Um, things that are said concerning the burnt offering from the herd are presupposed in the second one. So the, the business of putting a hand on the animal, it's not repeated in, when it comes right. to the flock. Um, some things are, um, but, but it's not all repeated. So that's kind of, I think, a helpful thing to notice. Um, they're, they're obviously the, the most expensive kind of animal would be, you know, from the herd. Um, you know, we're talking a, a bull here. Um, there's, uh, the flock would be, you know, relatively more affordable. Um, uh, but if you're very poor and you can't afford a, um, either of those and you can afford a bird, you are not excluded from the fellowship. You're part of this. And so God is he's concerned for the poor. You know, he's, he's always concerned for the poor. So, and, and there's no indication here that one is more acceptable than another, interestingly. It, this is, it's done according to the word of God. In every case, it's about this is a, a pleasing thing to God. He's, he's assuring them of his favor. And that's what he wants to give, yeah. even if it's the widow's might. That's right. Okay, so, so the matter of economics rather than levels of sacrifice, just what you can afford, that's what you bring. Now, in, in each of the first two cases, from the herd, from the flock, it's specified that you're to bring a male without blemish. Mm-hmm. I imagine for the sake of the birds, the reason that's not specified is because it's kind of hard to tell that yeah, ahead of time, right. where it's quite easy otherwise. But, but why this distinction? Why the male without blemish? Yeah, I think, again, this sort of does, uh, it, it's one of these wonderful uh, foreshadowings of, of Christ who comes as, you know, a male and the new head of the new humanity, the new Adam, um, and without blemish. Um, I guess to go with the, to the without blemish bit, I mean, you know, any flock might have its sort of scabby, mangy animals or the ones that are blind or the ones that you just want to get rid of anyway. No, that's not, God doesn't want that. You know, you're to, you're to bring a, uh, a a perfect specimen, a, a tamim specimen, a, one that is complete and whole. Uh, so that that's important from that point of view. And interesting, the priests had to be this way too. You know, God wanted... Again, this is this is not a, a diss on anybody who wouldn't fill this. This is just um, God is. He's, it's not about you. It's it's about the community. How is God going to bring His favor and blessing to all people? He, he's He's determining this, and um, yeah, they need to be. Um, they need to fit His criteria, even if they might. It might sometimes seem a bit arbitrary to us. Well, hey, He's God. You know, He's He's setting the the terms here, and. Yeah, that that in itself, as we've said before, is an important principle. Um, but people, you know, speculate about the male bit too. Actually, relatively, the male and the female within a herd. The male was you only need one of them to keep your herds going, right? But you need a lot more ewes, and you need a lot more cows. Right. So, in some ways, the um, you know, this is also just very practical. God, 
God knows the economics of, of farming as well. So there's that. Yeah, we can speculate about these things. Uh, for mine, I think the foreshadowing of Christ is important here. I think uh, right. we find this as a, as a larger um, thread throughout Scripture that we can't ignore. Yeah, that's right. And, and it's I think Peter in his first epistle makes this matter of, of without blemish. I mean, he he talked about Christ as that Lamb in First Peter chapter one. So that's that's the key point there. Now, the the one who's bringing it takes it to the entrance of the tent of the meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. And then, with the herd, it specified he lays his hand on the head. That is, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. If I understood you right, we should understand that same thing happening in the case of the the flock as well. Yeah. yeah. I th- maybe with the bird again, that being such a small animal. You might not do that, but the same idea is present. So what's what's going on with the laying the, the hand on the head and that being atonement? Yeah, it well, um, it's going to be used for atonement. The atonement is coming with the blood rite, uh, the disposal of the blood by the priest against the altar. But this is uh, an acceptable sacrifice to achieve atonement. And again, God has specified this. The laying of the hand, I mean, uh, on, on the head, the head, of course, is representative of the whole body. And this is this is perhaps a bit foreign to many much modern thinking to think this way. We're very individualistic, but um, yeah, this, by the way, would be this whole process would be done by the head of the family on behalf of his whole family. So one person is doing it, but the whole family is doing it in and through the head. Likewise, the priest representing bearing the guilt of Israel is the head of the community in this capacity. His, all Israel goes into the Holy of Holies, in a sense, uh, on the Day of Atonement, because the priest does. And so this uh, this idea is, is much more at home in the ancient world than it is perhaps with us. But um, but this, yeah, so he's, he's representing his community, his family, um, principally, and um, and he's putting his, his hand on the head of the animal, which is, of course, representative of the whole animal. Um, he's really vouching for it. This is my animal. Uh, I'm, it's come from my herd, uh, and, and it's yeah, here it is. So I think, very practically, I think that's what's going on there. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So he does that, and then after he's laid the hand on, it's going to make atonement, then he kills the bull. Mm-hmm. So the, the one doing the worshiping, he is killing the bull, and then Aaron's sons, they take the blood and throw that against the sides of the altar. And again, with some details being slightly different, the same process happens. The yeah. blood, maybe talk about the idea of the blood getting thrown on the altar. Yeah. Um, in terms of who does what, anything to do with the altar itself, the priest is doing. Um, the priest is disposing of the blood at the altar, but like you said, the um, the offerer is is actually killing the animal. Um, well, and the same goes for the arrangement of the slaughtered beast. Uh, the the offerer is right. to cut it up and and, and so forth. Um, Aaron and his sons will all assist with putting that on the altar because there's a lot of it and in the case of a goat that's not mentioned says darren or the high priest whoever's officiating that might be the um, deputy of the high priest at the time but whoever's officiating will, will do that because a, a goat is small enough you know yeah, right. to do that but um yeah so, so anything to do with the altar directly the priest does and this is where the uh, you know god works through means he works through offices uh, you know the office of priesthood was important here in israel as God would affect this and do this for them. Um, and, and of course, that will then lead to the smoking up of the, of the offering and that. Now, when it comes to the blood itself, later on, we, we have the, the promise in, in chapter 17 that the, the, God says that the life of, of a, 
of a creature is, is in the blood, you know. And, and he's given it for a purpose. He's given it for the purpose of atoning for you at the altar. This is all flesh, all life belongs to God. It doesn't belong to me. My life doesn't belong to me and the animals' lives don't belong to, to them or, or to me even. God has provided this for the purposes of atonement. And, and the, the important thing is the disposal of the animal. Every bit of this animal is going to disappear in one way or another. Most of it will go up in smoke. Yeah. Uh, the blood will be shed. Um, now, why is that? How would pagans use an animal? They would do all sorts of other stuff with this. For a start, the, the kidneys and the entrails, they would want to pull out and start to read to divine the will of the gods. God doesn't want that. No, you're not going to do that. That's not how you learn my will and way. You listen to Moses. He's, we've already got that. We don't need this stuff. Um, and and as, what about the blood then? How could that be misused in pagan worship? Well, if the spirit of, of an animal is in its blood, how better to get the spirit of an animal than to drink it? Okay, and uh, and this is a common way to thinking uh, thinking of it. Now let's just at that moment just think about the New Testament and how strange and remarkable it is that Jesus says, "This is my blood, yeah. drink of it, all of you," because whose blood is this? This is this is the second person of the Trinity in the flesh, giving him giving us his blood, in which is the spirit of the flesh. This is the means of the Spirit to us. I mean, God is giving us the Holy Spirit through the blood of Christ. And he's saying, I'm not just going to apply it to you externally, like we saw Moses doing in Exodus 24, just with a, a once-off flick of blood all over you guys on the outside. I'm going to give it to you to drink. I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit in the very blood of Christ to do all that the Spirit does, you know, the forgiveness of sins, life and salvation, all this great stuff that we get to benefit from week by week in the divine service. So again, wonderful anticipation of the gospel uh, revealed in the New Testament. Absolutely, absolutely. So there, there's the matter of the blood that gets sprinkled. As you said, anything that has to do with the altar, that is the priest's job. Now, you, you mentioned one of the, the details that comes up is what to do with the entrails and then the legs. You mentioned what the pagans would do. The Lord here provides for those to be washed before they are burned. Mm. Why are those parts washed first? Well, if you've ever gutted an animal, <laughs> I think it becomes pretty self-evident. Um, but yeah, so they're washed, um, and then the the dirt, to put it politely, gets uh, yeah. removed, and then they put the the actual animal that stuff on the altar for it to be burned too. So um, all of it gets burned. That's the point. That's um, a coal. Everything, all of it, uh, goes up in smoke. Right. So, the, and that's one of the features of this first offering that's described here in the in this chapter is that absolutely everything gets burned here in, in yeah. one way or another. And then, as you said, by the time you get to the end, you, there's plenty of things that aren't repeated, but one thing that does get repeated each time, and I, I think that's significant, is what the effect of this is. It's called a burnt offering and then a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Mm. And that matter of the pleasing aroma, I think, is what stands out the most. Yeah, and, and uh, before we get to that even, so the burnt offering, the word is Olah, and that's related to a Hebrew word, Allah, meaning to go up. So mm -hmm. it, it reminds us again of the focus of this offering. Every offering has its own focus. Um, a sin offering, the main focus is the blood rite, what, was, what happens also in this offering. But it's because atonement, it's why you're doing it. You're doing it because you've committed some sin for which God provides atonement. That's the real focus of that particular offering. In the case of the burnt offering, 
the, the focus is that is the smoke, the column of smoke that goes up from the offering. Uh, not even the incineration itself, but the smoking up. In fact, that's a good way to translate this. The, the offering is smoked up. So hence the idea, Allah, it's going up and brings to mind, of course, all sorts of things from Israel's earlier experience of God being present to them in the pillar of smoke and fire by night, all that kind of stuff. Um, so that's the first word. The second word, ishe, is related to the word for fire. This is a burnt offering. Um, so perhaps better translated as a gift rather than a food offering per se. I mean, the idea is certainly not that God is hungry and he needs to be fed. That, again, is another way that pagans... Uh, understood sacrifice what what is the purpose of sacrifices was to first of all it's because humans are slaves who need to make the lives of the gods easy and um and if they're going to so their basic job description is to farm and to produce food so that they can give it to the gods and and fulfill their duties um it's a very different kind of a situation in fact it's the reverse here god is not in this offering because it's all going up in smoke but in other offerings god is going to feed them it's the other way around. God is hosting table fellowship with his people as their gracious host. He is their guests. He is his, he, they are his guests. And uh, so that, that word ishe, I think it's unfortunately translated in ESV there. NIV has a, a burnt offering. I think it's a bit better. Or an offering by fire or something like that. But ish is a word for fire in Hebrew. Ishe is the word that's there. Uh, the pleasing aroma, that's the bit you, you pointed out, I think, rightly. Um yeah, this is, it's its a pleasurable thing. It's a good thing. God delights in the offering and therefore he delights in the offerer. It's all about God assuring that this is a pleasing offering. And and if that's the case, um, yeah, it's also true that God is taking pleasure in his people. Uh, he's not just tolerating them. You know, oh yeah, well, you're here. I'll, you know, I'll kind of put up with you. No, he's taking pleasure in them. He's, he's delighting in his people. Um, so that, that is a, a, a important promise. Uh, it may well have been what was said at the offering. You know, this is the Ola, the Ishe, the, um, the, the pleasing aroma uh, to God, for God. Um, it may have been that that was actually said. Otherwise, not much was said. Nothing was really said. It was all done. What God was doing through the blood, through the, um, the column of smoke in assuring his people of, of the favor that he had intended always for his people. These proper work. You know, we often hear about the alien work of God, uh, you know, and pe some people's impression of the Old Testament is it's all about that, all God's wrath and what have you. Um, but, oh, no, this is, this is what happens, of course, when sin meets the holiness of God. We do see that wrath. But, but God was longing to do his proper work amongst his people to assure them of his favor and grace. Yeah. So, Dr. Ensley, we have about a minute left. It's been a fantastic conversation, and there's so many details that we, we could talk about in this chapter, but I think you've given us a great handle on it. Maybe to, to close us out, talk a little bit more, again, with about a minute left, on that matter of God's delight. Because if, if God is, is pleased to dwell with his people here, he's pleased to welcome. I mean, that that recalls in my mind what the Father says to the Son at the baptism of Jesus, and there's, I think, a great New Testament connection to, to make here as we, we close things out. Helps to wrap things up. Yeah, great. That's a really good point. So, God, you know, of course, John has just said the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, and, and Jesus is fulfilling the entire offering system here. Um, you know, you think of that column of smoke going up, and you're thinking, you may be thinking of the ascension of Christ. You know, God is... Um, He's, but he's ascended to be present to us, to give us his grace and favor. You know, the scriptures describe Christ in Ephesians 5 as the uh, the pleasing aroma. 
Uh, Christ himself is the fragrant offering uh, on whose account we are accepted and find favor before God the Father. Uh, very, very important. And then we as Christians are called to um, to be living sacrifices. So in, under the new covenant, we you know we have the joy and, and uh, privilege of offering ourselves. We don't have to offer dead animals anymore. We, as people for whom Christ has died and, and made his sacrifice once for all, God has called us out of this world to be living sacrifices. And so Paul can even talk of gifts he's received from the Philippians as a pleasing aroma. Like, yeah, this is, like I said, this is missiological. God, is, God wants us to go to be witnesses in this world of his gracious presence. Um, we are that in the world by the grace of God and by the one sacrifice of Christ to be his holy people bearing witness. The Reverend Dr. Adam Hensley is Associate Professor of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. He's been helping us today to study Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. Dr. Hensley, thanks for being our guest today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about the book of Leviticus, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. I'm looking forward to spending this time with you in the book of Levit Leviticus. Thanks for spending this morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.